Hey, what's up everybody? My name is Jay Helms and I'm the founder of this podcast and movement known as the W2 Capitalist. So today's episode, I want to start off with uh, a couple of things, uh, a couple of apologies. Number one, I apologize for my voice. Uh, here we are about a week before Christmas when I'm recording this and our whole family's getting over the crud and, and all that stuff. So I'm a little, uh, my voice sounds a little tired. It doesn't always sound like this and you'll be able to tell what I mean here. This is the first episode you're listening into. Um, here in just a second. My second apology comes from not doing a good enough job planning. Again, we're here about a week before Christmas and I'm just realizing, holy crap, we're going to be going out of town uh, in about seven days. We're not going to get back to the first of the year. And I'm sitting here looking at all these podcasts that I don't have ready for you guys to listen to. So what I'm doing is I'm, I'm kind of scrambling this morning. I want to make sure I get you guys some content at least once a week. So what I'm doing is I'm throwing back to, um, this is a, a pre-recorded, uh, obviously, but it was back in March of 2019 uh, episode that the mastermind students did with, um, Natalie Kalati. She's a tax expert. She's a real estate investor. Uh, and it just all around good content and the members of the mastermind, we, we did a video session. You'll hear me reference a couple of times of here's what you were looking at or things of that nature. But it was a video session that we did with the mastermind with a special guest, uh, Natalie came on and just answered our tax questions. And I thought this would be more appropriate. Here we are at the first of the year. Um, you guys are probably wrapping up your 2019 books and getting everything ready for your CPA. If you don't have a CPA, I highly recommend it. It's the best thing, best decision I made about three years ago. Uh, up until then, I was like, I can do this myself. It's just numbers, right? You just plug them into a spreadsheet. Um, but since I've done that, there's been so much just stress relief off of my back. And actually, uh, my CPA has allowed me to pay less in taxes, which uh, I thought I was working the system pretty good. But when you rely on the experts, and I highly recommend that you do uh, for audit purposes and of things of that nature. But just want to put this in front of you. Hopefully you've got some of the same questions and we'll get those answered for you. But before we dive into the content, I want to point you to our website. Check out our affiliates and sponsors. It's w2capitalist.com slash affiliates. One of the recent new affiliates I'm really excited about is dealcheck.io. Uh, if you're on BP or you've got your own built-in uh, spreadsheet that just calculators that you want to look at and do things with. I highly recommend you check out these these guys at DealCheck.io. Um, they make it super easy to analyze rental properties, flips, and multifamily buildings, which I, I really love. And estimated cash flow to find the best real estate deals. Because one one of the things they do is they 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 work this. Their calculator says, okay, what's your max offer? And then it shows you everything that you need to do. So um, just a little bit more about them. Over 225,000 rentals have, have and over 175,000 flips have been analyzed from 100,000 plus users uh, over five different countries. So check them out, w2capitalist.com slash affiliates. And there's a special promo code there for you, w2capitalist. Uh, get you an additional 25% off, but you actually get to try them for two months absolutely free. Uh, but check them out. All right, let's get to work. capitalist. You are addressing the gap between your successful, fulfilling W-2 job 
and building wealth for your family through real estate investing. You are ready to earn, invest, repeat. Welcome to the W2 Capitalist Podcast. Now, let's get to work. Here's your host, Jay Helms. Hey everybody, so we just wrapped up, the W2 Capitalist Mastermind Group just wrapped up their virtual guest call with Natalie Kalati. She's a real estate investor, she's a tax strategist. One of the most important things we forgot to do for that call is issue a disclaimer. So what you're about to watch is for entertainment purposes only, make sure any tax strategy you go after uh, and reporting it to the IRS is done through a certified uh, public accountant uh, or tax strategist make sure you have that trusted advisor in your corner. You're going to want that uh, moving forward. So I went and changed into my paint and clothes. I got to get after the honeydew list. You guys enjoy this video and I'll talk to you soon. Seriously, here we go. Hey everybody, this is Jay Helms and this is a guest great guest speaker call we're doing for the W2 Capitalist Mastermind members. We are joined by Natalie Kalati, right? Did I get that right? Yep. Okay. So Natalie Kalati, she is a tax strategist. She's very active on Bigger Pockets, which is a website we all love and adore for what, what it does. So a little bit about Natalie. She's worked in tax services since 2014, uh, helping individuals and businesses and clients keep as much of their money from the IRS as legally possible, which I love that because I absolutely hate the IRS. Um, she opened her own tax firm in 2017, working exclusively with real estate investors, brokers, and lenders. Um, she's very tax code uh, extensive. Having someone who is specialized and passionate about your specific tax situation makes a world of difference. And I love that Natalie is not only focused on real estate, but she also invests in real estate. So. Natalie invested, uh, started investing in 2013. Is that right? Yep. yep. Um, and we'll get into that a little bit. I'll let you kind of go through that. I know you have an interesting story and then uh, about how you got started and then we'll talk about that. And then you also have a love for shiplap. Is that correct? Yeah. You got to put it wherever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wherever or everywhere. A little bold. Depends. <laughs> I got gotcha. you. I got gotcha. you. So tell us about when you started uh, your real estate investing career. Yeah, I did exactly what we tell everyone not to do. I paid for the weekend guru seminar. <laughs> <There you> <laughs> so I went to that and um, left determined to be a wholesaler like everyone else. Found out it's harder than they make it sound, just like a lot of people find out and kind of looked for another method. I wasn't going to just give up since I'd now dumped some money into it. So I was looking for kind of another area. And what I ended up landing on was mobile and manufactured homes. So they're a lot easier to find deals. They're a little less kind of of an attractive deal to people. It's not as sexy as like flipping high-end homes, but they're easy to find. There's low entry costs and there's just a great market for them. So yep. yeah, so I started off as flipping mobile homes in parks in the greater Seattle area. Nice. And so you started in Seattle. You're now in Charlotte. Mm -hmm. right? Okay. Yep. And with, with ties back to Pensacola, right? Yep. We talked about a little bit about that, but I know, so I, um, I've got a couple of mobile home parks. Tim's got a couple of mobile home, not, excuse me. I've got a couple of mobile homes. Tim has a couple of mobile home parks. Does anybody mm -hmm. else here have mobile homes in their portfolio? No. Okay. Um, 
So with that being said, we'll get into the questions today from the W2 Capitalist Mastermind Group members. Not everybody's here today, but it does. Uh, we, we do have a lot of questions from our members. And Drew, I want you to lead us off, buddy, if you could. Uh, and I'll go ahead and unmute you with your questions for Natalie. So, Sounds good, Jay. Natalie, thank you for uh, taking the time to meet with all of us today. Uh, apologize, my voice is a little hoarse uh, under the weather. Uh, but the first question I had was uh, regarding cost segregation, uh, kind of the do's and don'ts of cost segregation. And is it worth it? Or in what instances uh, is it worth it? I imagine not every property um, should have a cost segregation done. And maybe uh, if you wouldn't mind also diving into that a bit, if others aren't familiar with the concept. Yeah, so with cost segregation, I tend to tell people that don't even bother looking at it until you have a property where the building value is about 250 or higher. And that's building alone, not total purchase price. Just because they cost a fair amount to have done. And so doing it on a property that costs less doesn't pay off. And even at 250, it's kind of a, you're at the very bare minimum where it might make sense. So the way a cost segregation works in case you um, aren't familiar is normally on a rental, everything that's attached to that property gets depreciated where you get to deduct a little portion of the house over 27 and a half years or 39 if it's commercial. And with cost segregation, an expert comes in and literally breaks out every small component of the house so you can depreciate it on a shorter timeline. So they'll break out your electrical and your lighting and your flooring. Normally the only thing you can deduct separately is appliances, uh, carpet, and window fixtures. Everything else would have to be on that long timeline. So by coming in and breaking those items out, you can take a bigger expense in the front end of your property. And so that's what a lot of people do and then end up 1031-ing. Um, an interesting item to note is when you do a cost segregation, you're literally taking the basically the tax code for the type of property and changing it from real estate to personal property. And as of 2018, you can't do a 1031 exchange on personal property. So basically no one knows yet. If now, if you go to 1031 exchange, a cost segregated property, if you'll face potential boot, which is taxable gain, even though you're doing a 1031, or if they're gonna issue further guidance, basically kind of creating a loophole. So that's, that's kind of the current situation with cost segregation. And that, so I'm going to interrupt real quick. So that 10 new rule for 2018, is that part of the new, like we were talking about, um, or you posted something the other day about 199A, is that a whole, the whole 2018 tax reform, is that part of it? Yep. It's part of that. So they made 1031 exchanges only viable on real estate now. So you can't do it, which is kind of awful because it started off with farmers trading in equipment. They can't do it anymore. So only real estate. So the tax, you know, tax wizards haven't clarified if you say part of your house is no longer part of a house, basically you're saying your electrical separate, if it would still qualify or not. I gotcha. So, uh, so I have two sidebar questions, Drew. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm going to yep. go off something you said. So depreciation. Mm -hmm. uh, now you mentioned depreciation on a, um, an expedited timeline. I don't think you said expedited, but I think that's what you meant. Right. So yep. what, what advantages, are there to depreciate on an expedited timeline versus just letting it depreciate on the normal timeline? 
Yep, so what a lot of people do is you can basically, you're forcing an expense into the earlier years. So years one through five, this is how like a lot of REITs or hedge funds operate. You take an accelerated depreciation. So instead of getting to deduct $4,000 for the year, you get to deduct 40. And then come year five, you're out of depreciation, you've expensed it all, basically you've used it all. In year five is when you sell, you know, 1031 into something new, figure out a transition. Yep. Okay. And then on that, um, did, do you have to start the, um, cost segregation depreciation year one when you purchase a property or if it's in year three and you decide, Hey, I want to do this now. Can I start it then in year three? You can do it later on. There's no timeline for when it can be done. It just, the longer you wait, you're kind of, you've already taken some, so it's going to cut into it a little bit, but you can always do it. Okay. That's it for now, Drew. I'm going to throw it back to you, bud. Uh, sounds good. And those are great follow-up questions. Um, the second question I had was regarding, um, syndicated deals where you have, um, either a joint venture or a general partner and a limited partner. And if you are the only person signing on the note, um, are you allowed to claim all the, uh, depreciation and interest uh, shield? Um, or is there a way to structure a syndicated deal that benefits the note signer? Uh, uh, so I kind of kick it to you or if you have any kind of follow-up questions on that, um, ideally how you could structure a deal that'd be more beneficial for the one taking on the risk. So syndication is kind of a weird, a weird topic because it's this term used to encompass tons of different structured deals like REITs or syndication. I think what you're talking about is more like if you got together with 10 people and raised funds to purchase like a mobile home park or something. Um, And can you have the general partner, I think was your question, take all of the depreciation as a default? No, right? Partnership expenses are split based on the partnership agreement. So you could theoretically have it structured via the partnership agreement. So have the lawyer draft it to where it essentially works out that way. But as a default, no, all of the expenses of the partnership are going to get split between the members, regardless of general um, or if they're limited. And like I said, it really partnerships are kind of weird because the tax treatment of them falls back onto their agreement. So it can legally be structured that way. But as a default, just because you're general partner, no. Um, and also just to note, make sure the note is still in the name of the partnership even though a general partner is kind of signing to secure it, you want to make sure the debt matches the ownership and not basically you buying it and transferring it in because that can trigger a taxable event. That's a great question, Drew. I I had not thought about that. Um, Do you have any other follow-ups regarding to that question? Then I want to get to your last one, which I think Terry has a similar question too. So I think that wraps that question up. And then, um, um, are you referring to the real estate professional question? Yes. Yes. So, uh, real estate professional, it's, uh, obviously a great benefit if you can qualify for that for tax purposes or it can be, uh, what activities count towards uh, being a real estate professional, uh, and what doesn't count. And before you answer that, Natalie, Terry, you had a similar question, uh, and you worded it just a little bit differently. 
uh, right? As, as, and you said something about at what point do you become classified as a real estate professional and why would you want to be, right? Is that? Essentially, yeah. Where, um, why would it be advantageous to you and how, how far along do you need to get in order to, for that to, to be an option for you? So, so yeah, it's right in there with what Drew's saying. So just maybe an explanation of the whole concept. Yeah. What do you think, Natalie? How do you, can we combine those two? Yeah, we can definitely combine those two. Okay. Real estate professional is one of my, it's like one of the greatest gifts we have from the IRS. So we need to treasure it and treat it accordingly. So basically the way it works is passive income and active income. You normally can't mix. Same with passive and active losses like oil and vinegar, right? You can't use one to offset the other. Then the IRS said, there's a small loophole. So if you make under a certain amount of money, they do let you use passive losses on your regular income. But most people phase out of that. They make too much money. And then the only way to get to use any passive losses is being a real estate professional. So let me backtrack a tiny bit. So when I'm talking about losses, rentals ideally on paper, they cash flow. So you actually have cash in the bank at year end. But then after depreciation, you have a loss on paper. So kind of the golden scenario is for example, $2,000 sitting in your bank account on December 31st, but then on paper, a loss of $3,000. So really, you have $2,000 more, but you're paying tax on $3,000 less than had you not owned the rental. So it's a compounding benefit. So you want to be able to do that. So if you phase out of that income limit, which is $150,000, if you make more than that, you don't get to use those losses. They roll forward till a year when you can. I describe it as... If you're playing Super Mario and you've already got the little foxtail and you get a star and it just <laughs> above the box, you can't use it till you lose your foxtail. Same thing. Your passive losses just hang out in a floating box till you can get to use them. Then they then they come into play. So what was your really, favorite video game growing up? It was Super Mario. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just awesome. the best kind of. I feel like anyone between 18 and 50 understands that analogy, <laughs> so I always yeah. use it. <laughs> <laughs> it's just there until you can use it. Yeah. And, but, and you said something interesting. That, I'm sorry, I'll interrupt you real quick. Um, you said it can roll forward, right? Yep. So can you dive into that a little bit? And then maybe we can circle back around to, the, to Drew's part of the real estate professional question. Yeah. So if this year you make $150,000 for your adjusted gross income and you have a rental loss of $10,000, you can't do anything. <laughs> like okay. it just, you don't get to use it this year. But then say next year, you have a set a new rental and it shows income on paper of $5,000. Well, now you can use that loss from last year. So it rolls forward till there's an applicable income type to use it against. And it never expires, right? Nope. Okay. It's good forever. And then the year that you sell that property, so a lot of people run into this where their losses are basically trapped forever. They just hang out in there the whole time you own it. The year you sell it, they become all available. Okay. So if you had 10 grand a year, you know, for five years, then you go to sell, you have $50,000 that will offset your gain. So okay. that's something people don't think about too, but that can be part of your strategy for kind of, you know, offloading a property, getting a new one yep. without yep. doing a 1031. You know, and, and what is um, shocking to me, so we're, we're in the question three or four of this whole mm -hmm. segment and I think you've already expressed the importance of having a, uh, a tax strategist or a CPA who is focused on real estate because 
I would imagine you said people don't realize that they can do this. I imagine there's CPAs who don't focus on real estate that don't know some of the things that you just explained, right? No, last year was my first year as a tax firm being solo. And I amended about 35 returns based on stuff like this because licensed CPAs and real estate, like actual tax professionals just don't, it's the tax code is huge. It's, it is insane. Right. Um, it has grown exponentially since it was first created. And so if you don't specialize in one niche, there's no way that you can know kind of the, the strategy to it because you're trying to just know all of tax enough yeah. to have it compliant, but you're, it's hard to get past that into any kind of strategic knowledge. Wow. Okay. Uh, so Drew's question, we'll finally get to it. <laughs> what, what activities count toward uh, what's, uh, and in air quotes, real estate professional uh, distinction? So I'll kind of combine the answers. So to become a real estate professional, when they're asked, when Drew's asking about what activities, it's because you need a certain amount of hours of activity to qualify. So there's a couple rules. It's 750 hours. Most people can get that one. What disqualifies people over and over again is that you have to spend more time in real estate than any other combined profit motive activities. So anyone who has a nine to five job, we can basically never qualify. The IRS comes back over and over in tax court and disallows it. Gotcha. So what counts towards those hours is basically anything. So there was even a tax case, I think in 2016, where they allowed travel time. So that was kind of a huge a huge add-on because historically that was kind of wishy-washy. The IRS has never said specifically A, B, C, and D qualify. So what you have to say is, would I be incurring this activity if I didn't own these rentals or if I wasn't involved in real estate? Gotcha. And so there's kind of two ways to qualify. If you're, if you're like a real estate agent or if you work in the industry 100%, you qualify. If it's based so on Terry, rentals. So Terry qualifies. Terry's our loan broker, right? In the group. Yep. Okay. Yep. So Terry should qualify. Um, if it's based on your rentals, there's kind of a few options. So normally it's each activity. So you would have to qualify based on hours of each property separate. And that wouldn't work. So we can choose to have it looked at together and lump them into one activity of a rental portfolio. But then what happens, right? There's always these kind of catches with tax. What happens is any of those losses that we were just talking about that roll forward, normally when you sell them, you get to use them. If we lump all your rentals together, if you sell one, you don't get to use those losses. They're still stuck in the unit. So there's kind of a trade-off there just to be aware of. So this is why having a real estate tax strategist versus a regular person who kind of looks at the big picture comes into play because we can really make a 10-year plan that's it's like playing Monopoly. <laughs> we can really get yeah. strategic with it. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to lie. When you started diving into specific, and I I'm hate that I'm about to say this, but I started to glaze over just a little bit. Okay. But it's, and, and the point I want to make is if you're thinking about, because up until last year, I did my taxes all myself, you know, and, and when I started telling people that, they were like, as much as you do in real estate, that is ridiculous. Hire a CPA. I did that. And, you know, I love being able just to hand over and say, here's my stuff. But you said something there too that I've, I haven't really heard about is a 10-year strategy. At least I haven't talked to my CPA about, hey, here's the strategy going forward. So is that something you do with your clients? Is, it, is a 10-year strategy realistic? Do you also do like three and five-year strategies or how far out do you go? 
Yeah, I do kind of what makes sense for them. There's certain people who are brand new in real estate and they're like, I don't know, I just want to buy some rentals. But then there are people, I have a lot of clients who specifically say, I want to retire by 45. I want to travel the country with my kids. I don't want to be tied down with a job. How do we make it happen? Yeah. And so that's where I kind of go a little outside of a normal, what a normal tax professional will do. And we kind of look at the big picture and plan it out as sort of an overall strategy and kind of a business plan more than just tax preparation. Okay. Patrick, I'm going to turn it over to you, man. I'm tired of talking right now. So. <laughs> Easy day, easy day. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So um, I am, uh, me and my wife, we focus mostly on rehabs. So I know taxation can be a little bit more difficult to try to avoid uh, in that scenario. So but there are specific um, benefits um, to taxing as a sub S corp rather than just your standard LLC taxing. So could you go into a little bit of that specifically for like rehabbers, how that can benefit? When you say rehab, are you saying like a flip, you're rehabbing and selling or rehabbing and yes. keeping? Selling? So. Okay. Um, so the reason that comes into play with an S-Corp is that typically any flip income is earned income. So it's ordinary income. The IRS looks at it the same as if you opened a pizzeria, except instead of buying pepperoni and dough, you're buying a house and new fixtures, you know, they look at it the same way. So then what happens is all of that income you earn from your flip is subject to self-employment taxes. Those are all the little payroll taxes that come out of your paycheck, FICA, Medicare. Normally you pay half, your employer pays half. If you're self-employed, you're paying both halves. It's a 15% tax. So 15% on hundred grand profit, it's pretty substantial. So the reason an S election comes into play is that the IRS gave it special rules. And they basically said with an S corp, if you pay yourself a reasonable salary, which would pay those payroll taxes, the rest of the income you take out of it isn't subject to that 15% tax. So that's where the S corp comes into play for flips is that if you make 200 grand in a year and we say, okay, reasonable salary is 50, the other 150, we've just saved you 15.3% on. So that's where it comes into play. But little caveat, please never put your rentals in a corporation. Anyone with rentals, don't put them in there. <laughs> it's like a little landmine of tax events. So, but for flips, yes, S corp, is kind of the strategy. Okay, perfect. And that, I guess would lead into my uh, second question. For our rentals, um, keeping them in separate entities, does it, what's the, what's the reasons you would want to? Because I know for certain entities, uh, if you do a certain number of flips, you're considered a and then the taxation can be different. I've, I've heard di differing things on how that yeah. works. It's not really much different. Um, so basically flips are always gonna be taxes, ordinary income. That's kind of where the confusion into play. The dealer status doesn't change how you're taxed. The only time a flip wouldn't be ordinary income would be if it was kind of an accident, right? Like you inherit a house and you fix it up and sell it. But mm -hmm. if you bought something to try to sell it for profit, ordinary income. Um, so the reason we want to keep it separate from your rentals is they're going to be passive income. And basically putting your rental into an S corp or any kind of a corporation, there's a lot of just normal transactions you would do that in a corporation trigger tax. So like if you tried to put it into your own name to refinance or if you decided to occupy it, there's just a million things. So um, like if it was yourself and your wife on an LLC as a partnership, put your rentals in that one and then a selection for the flips and just keep them separate. Perfect. Thank you. Yep. And t so Terry, you have your hand raised and then Ryan will go to you for your question. So Terry, what you got? 
Um, so going back to the reasonable salary on the S Corp, which is exactly how I'm structured on my flips, and I do have a partnership mm -hmm. for if I do rentals, but um, uh, how do you determine what's reasonable? Obviously, it's, and correct me if I'm incorrect, um, the lower the salary, the better, um, and let more of the income passively flow through, but where what's reasonable <laughs> yeah it's a big it's a big um term yeah i wish i knew that <laughs> <laughs> okay. they haven't ever given specific guidance on it there's not like a chart it's basically what you would pay someone else to do your job so that's okay. kind of tricky because most of us do 50 different things so we could break out your time by what you spend kind of being the property manager being kind of on admin tasks we can break it out into how the time is spent and find an appropriate salary for each to kind of bring it down. Um, because otherwise they're going to pull kind of the highest salary. If you ever got audited, they'd say, Oh, well you're acting like, a, I don't know what they call it, but like maybe a high end <laughs> salary for a real estate broker, the IRS will always pull whatever gets them the most money. So we uh -huh. can really, as long as we can break it out and substantiate the less, um, expensive portions of your time, like I said, admin work or like listing that, properties, like any of those smaller things, we can kind of justify it. But basically what they don't want to see is someone who takes out $90,000 through the year in just distributions to themselves. And then at year end runs a $10,000 salary and calls it good. It has to be justified. Okay. All right. Thank you. Yep. Jamie, do you have a follow-up question to that? I, I just have a question on, um, is there a certain threshold of income you, you would recommend doing an S corp for your flips? Like if I'm only doing a couple of years, does it still make sense to just put all of those in an S corp? Um, or is there, is there a threshold of income that it, it makes sense to do it versus not doing it? Yep. I always use about $70,000. So 70 net is kind of my point. Um, the reason being, if you make any less between filing a separate tax return, payroll expense, admin expenses, you pay more than you're saving. Right. Um, but something to note that's important is the way you get an S corp is it's an election on an LLC. So make sure you have an LLC set up from the beginning. So if you're making 30 grand, great. Keep it in the, keep, we're just letting it roll. If you have one knockout deal in November and you call me and say, Natalie, I just made $200,000. We can make it an S corp at that point. If you're doing them in your personal name, I can't help you. So have that LLC set up from the jump. Perfect. Ryan, let's get to you, man. What's your question for Natalie? Yeah, you're on mute. How about now? All right, I'm going to ask you a question, okay? <laughs> Uh, so Ryan's question for you, Natalie, is what advice would you give to an investor starting from ground zero? <clears throat> I assume a lot of folks play catch up from an accounting standpoint, from a tax standpoint, but are there any tips you'd give to start on the right foot? Hey, Jay, I'm in. You got me? There you go. Yeah, there you go. There we go. You did a good job, though. Okay. This, this question might put this question might put Drew to sleep, but uh, it's, yeah. it's kind of simple. But just just from just to expand on it real quick is, is if you're just, like I said, starting from ground zero, how would you suggest someone set that up or, or set up for success so they're not playing catch up? Start tracking everything from the beginning. And I know that sounds, everyone 
like Jay said, kind of glaze over when I tell you track your accounting records. People hate it. <laughs> so get asked, just get asked for everything. Get receipt bank. Just take pictures of any receipts you incur that are, if you wouldn't have bought it, had you not had an interest in real estate, doesn't count. But if the, if the only reason you're buying it is it's somewhat related, if you bought, you know, bigger pockets membership, a book on real estate, whatever, take a picture of that receipt and just have it stored, put it into a spreadsheet, whatever the case may be. Um, and so yeah, just start tracking your, your time, your mileage, track anything that's new because you're interested in real estate. And then if you're ground zero, as in you just bought a rental and you're like, oh man, now what do I do? Talk to a tax professional the first year. Everyone's like, oh, I only have one. This is the easiest year. I'm just going to do it. The first year when it gets set up is when most people mess it up and then it flows forward every year. So like if I've got to go back and fix five years, <laughs> it's going to cost more than if you just, if you have to pick a year, pick a professional for year one and then go solo if you want. But just find, build your team around you. You know, you always want to be kind of, you never want to be the smartest person on your team. So always outsource anything you can to people who know it better than you do. That's my advice for brands bank and new. Right, I can testify that. So um, this last year when I went and met with a CPA, he said, okay, well, bring me your last tax return. And page one, you know, he sits down with me and goes through and just starts highlighting with a red marker. So <laughs> we got to fix this. We're going to have to do an addendum. We're going to fix this, this, yep. this. He said, these are huge flags for the IRS and we don't want that to happen. So um, again, just another advantage to, to having somebody who's focused on not just taxes, but real estate investing toward taxes. Tim, what you got, buddy? So Natalie, for tracking expenses, the way I've always done it and it's always worked out is I, I simply just have a business credit card for all business transactions. So there's statements for literally everything. Um, but it was actually brought to my attention recently that that's great because everything business related is tracked and the statements are in place. But let's say if we have like doing a rehab or whatever, we have a Lowe's transaction for $560. Uh, sometimes it, it helps the CPA to categorize whether that was um, a, an actual expense or an improvement of, you know, because that's different from a tax standpoint. So um, I, and I, I hate keeping receipts, tracking receipts. If I know I have an invoice, I'll just take a picture of it and keep a digital copy. I don't like backing up papers. Um, it's just, it's 2019. I don't think it's a need, there's a need for it unless I'm wrong. And that's really where the question is. Um, do you believe that sometimes we need more than just that credit card statement all from all the business transactions, um, from, you know, from your standpoint or, and, and feel free to elaborate in, in any way you can on that. Yeah, um, that's a great way for personal tracking. It doesn't hold up in an audit. <laughs> so exactly what you're doing is what I tell people, like Receipt Bank just lets you take pictures of your invoices or of your receipts and store them digitally, but you can do it with any, um, like I have Scam, what's called Scan Camer, Cam Scanner, I think is what the app's called. It just takes a PDF photo of your documents and it just sends it straight to my Google Drive. It can be a digital receipt, so as long as you just have some copy and that actually if the IRS can audit you for seven years, your receipts won't last seven years, so it's better to just have it digital. So exactly what you're doing is fine. Um, and the current cutoff, I always tell people, it's like, I don't need all your receipts. I actually won't do your taxes if you send me a big pile of receipts. Um, <laughs> if it's over $2,500, that's the point where we might capitalize it. So any big ticket items, $25 or 2500 or more, send me the invoice. If it's less than that, I'm just going to trust that you are not lying to me, basically. <laughs> 
There are plenty of apps out there for receipt tracking. I use Expensify. Um, you mentioned one, Natalie. Um, so, you know, I, I'm with you, Tim, totally digital. As soon as somebody hands me a receipt, I'm taking a picture on my phone and throwing the receipt in the garbage, you know. Um, I want to ask a question. This is personal to me. So we are an expanding family. We've got to do something with our vehicle situation. Um, and my wife's vehicle is actually purchased under the LLC, right? So it's titled into the LLC. That's the vehicle that we're going to upgrade, right? Um, so my question is, would it be better for us to go and buy something and track mileage or, you know, keep it in the LLC and still track mileage? Or is leasing a car a better tax advantage uh, from our standpoint? Um. So basically, in I would say 85 to 90% of cases, mileage comes out ahead. And the other part of that is you can start with mileage and switch to actual expense at any point. You can't do it the other way around. So mileage is almost always more beneficial. So you can start with that. And then if you find you're driving less than year three, we can change you over. Or if you're one of those people who drives a car forever, you take mileage expense the first. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Investors, we're all cheap. We don't yeah. spend much <laughs> So you take the mileage expense for 10 years and then year 11, when your transmission explodes and stuff starts going wrong, we switch to actual because now the car costs more money. But yeah. I would say it's going to, again, it depends, right? The age yeah. old tax statement, but typically start with mileage and then switch over. Um, okay. There were some advantages with bonus depreciation changing this year. So you can expense more of a car at once, but it's still, it's just going to be a side by side. Your tax pro should be able to pop it both in there and see what's more beneficial for you specifically based on how many miles you drive and what it's used for. Okay. Terry, what you got? So on the vehicle thing, what about the actual cost of the vehicle? Um, can you, I bought a, I bought a new car in, in the fall. 95% um, of my driving is done for business. Can I write off the actual cost of the vehicle plus the mileage depreciation or? It's an either or. So if you, or. Okay. if the vehicle is 50% or more business use, even if it's in your name, we can potentially expense, you know, using depreciation, using um, bonus depreciation lets you write off. I think it's $18,000 worth now in 2018. But like I was saying, you really want to weigh it out with your miles because if you take that 18,000, you've got no deduction for future years. You know, that wipes out most of your vehicle and you can't switch to mileage afterwards. So you really gotta just run it side by side and see what'll make most sense for you. Okay, thank you very much. Yeah. Tim, what you got, buddy? So Natalie, um, I know a lot of us, I mean, for me, and I think probably goes for a lot of people here, we're driving less and less and less because we're all on a virtual tour right now from home. So um not expensing the vehicle um you said 80 90 percent of the time it's better to track the miles but if we're not really like driving to a property every day we're not driving for dollars we're just at home or in a starbucks on the phone meeting with brokers and we're not really tracking miles a whole lot is there kind of uh sort of you gave us like a baseline 2500 or more to grab a receipt for the expense is there like a baseline if you drive this many miles per year, then it will be worth it, or it, it would be better to, to expense it. Because anytime you fill up your tank of gas, anytime you do an oil change, anytime you drive somewhere to go out to dinner, to meet an investor or whatever it is, 
those all those tra uh, expenses could get tracked. But when you're doing miles, is it those expenses as well as miles, or is it either or? And then is there a baseline for how many miles you think would be more beneficial? Yep. So it's either or. And what it comes down to is you have to track miles either way, because if your vehicle is used for personal use at all, we need the mileage breakout between business and personal. So you have to track your mileage either way. I like the MyLiQ app. It's just like when you get to your destination, you swipe one way if it was business, you swipe the other way if it was a personal travel and it tracks it for you. Um, and I think the base version is free and you can do 30 trips a month with it. So you have to track your miles either way. So at the end of the year, come in with your total for expenses for the car and your total miles and hand it to your accountant and they'll tell you which gets you a better deduction basically. What was that app called? Mile IQ? Mile IQ. Okay. <clears throat> I'm going to have to check that out. So, um, Tim, did that get your question answered? Yeah. Okay, cool. Uh, we'll go to Ryan and then we'll go to Terry. Hey, I got the mute thing figured out. Natalie, real quick, what <laughs> off the top of uh, my head, I remember there was some tax benefit to purchasing like trucks, pickup trucks or SUVs over a certain like gross weight. What was that about? Do you remember, or do you know off the top of your head? Yeah, it's the Hummer loophole is what they call it. So basically it was designed for construction vehicles, but then we started making Escalades and SUVs that way more than 4,500 pounds or whatever the cutoff is. So if you are going to expense a vehicle all at once, the limits are higher if it is not a car, but a vehicle over a certain weight limit. So if you're looking at getting a pickup truck anyway, kind of thing, or a big SUV, um, you might be able to expense more all at once. But like I said, still run it side by side because you know, it's, it's so, that's why I hate giving a cut and dry answer on it. It's going to depend on your situation and how many miles you drive and just kind of the overall. When you say ex expense it all at once, you're talking about depreciation, like depreciate it all yeah, at once so in one year. With, yeah. With bonus depreciation, they just bumped it up. And I know for vehicles, like I said, it used to be that you could deduct because bonus depreciation, it's still depreciating it, but it lets you take a big chunk at once. It's kind of like a power up. So yeah. they let you take a big chunk at once. And now it's like $18,000 the first year for a car. So for a big truck, it's going to be even higher. I don't yeah. know offhand the exact number. Okay. Um, but again, you know, you got to look at kind of the future. And <laughs> are you going to have a bad time in years three through five if you took it all in year one? Yeah. Okay. Terry? Okay. So back to if we do the actual expense, can you break it apart into a number of years? Um, or as far as the actual purchase, yeah, I, I got a zero, one of those 0%. So I'm just paying principal. Can I do it based on what I'm actually paying in any given year? Or do I need to do it all like from last fall when I purchased the vehicle? So it'll be based on the purchase price over the life of the car. Your loan and financing won't come into play. So, okay. you know, it would normally be say over five years. But with bonus depreciation, it lets you take that 18000 worth of it all in year one instead. But it's over the life of the car. And then once the depreciation runs out in year five, you still get the gas, the repairs, the kind of the other expenses that would be actually incurred. Okay. Okay. So the trick is knowing how long the life of the car is. <laughs> it should be five years oh, on a depreciable five. basis. Okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. Keep in mind, you can always start with the mileage and then switch to actual expense later. But if you take actual year one, you can never go to mileage. Okay. So once you use that five years, you got to buy a new car, I guess. That's your kind of your uh, direction. Hooray. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, thank you. 
Yep. And Drew, you posted some questions in the chat. You want to go through those real quick? Can you hear me? Yes. Uh, sorry, I was on mute. Um, this is kind of uh, jumping around a bit from where we were just discussing. Um, going back to cost segregation, um, my understanding is those reports are a little pricey and I think probably in the realm of $5,000, maybe more, maybe less. Uh, is that actual expense, um, is that something you can deduct or is that lower your property taxable income? How is that treated on a tax return? Yeah, it would be an expense. It would just be an expense in the year incurred. <clears throat> okay. Um, and then this is a personal curiosity. Uh, mobile home parks, uh, I know you mentioned kind of low barriers to entry and something that you uh, are interested in and actively investing in. Uh, do you do uh, lot rentals or do you actually own the uh, mobile homes as well? Sorry, lost my little phone stand. Um, so what I have done historically is just purchase the home on leased land. So I'm dealing with the property manager and not owning the actual land. Um, but moving forward, I would love to own the whole actual park. But if you can find a park where they don't mind that an investor is investing in it and you can work with them on the rental, um, then it's a really, really easy scenario to get into. Okay, interesting. Um, and then I think I'm getting this term right. Uh, and. Uh, is it qualified business deduction? Uh, I know you briefly mentioned that on oh. one of the Facebook threads. Yeah, the new qualified business income deduction. So I'll just kind of talk about this for a minute here. So part of the new tax cuts and jobs, they basically lowered the tax rate for C-Corps, which pay their own tax. So to make it fair, they gave everyone else 20% deduction. It sounds easy, but it's not. And they just keep making it more and more complicated in terms of how you qualify. Um, and what they just released, so basically from the beginning people were questioning if rental income would qualify because a rental isn't by nature a business, but a rental can reach the taxable level that the IRS defines as being a business, if that makes sense. Um, so long story short, your rental should qualify as long as you are involved regularly and in it to make money. Um, and they just added a safe harbor policy that's basically like a checklist you can meet the requirements of to qualify, but it's stupid and it's easier to qualify just by meeting the qualifications of being a rent or being a business. And um, so the qualification for being a business is, uh, I guess, an enterprise to earn profit? Yeah, it's defined as regular participation with the intent of profit. And that is all the guidance the IRS has chosen to issue, but there's about 30 tax cases where they've ruled in favor of landlords. So you basically just have to show that you're trying to make money with it and that you have control of the decisions of how it generates income. Understood. And the, uh, the actual tax break or benefit that we would receive is, is it, is it 20% uh, is shielded or? Yeah, it? yeah it's a 20% deduction but it you have to have net income for it to be taken against so many rentals create a loss anyway so there's a lot of people where it's not going to benefit this year it could create a qualified business income or qualified business loss rather that rolls forward to next year just like your regular losses um it is a super complicated topic and they released the final regs on it about four or five days ago 
So if your tax professional doesn't know about this, be kind to them because they, we just literally just told us like five seconds ago. <laughs> I was yeah. 250 pages of tax code on a Saturday. So, so um, interesting. And I know you shared an article, I believe it is something that you wrote. Um, has that content, is that content still accurate based off of what was just released? Yep, that was written after I finished right reading the 250 pages of new guidance. Okay. So that is the most up-to-date. Basically what it comes down to, like I said, with rentals, the whole time I've said they should qualify based on this tax code, the IRS created kind of a safe harbor, they call it, which is a checklist of time and activities. Um, but it's actually harder to meet. And it's not the same activities that we talked about earlier for real estate professional. It is very limited in what types of activities you can count towards your time. So um, I guess in summary, just talk to your tax professional because it's a really kind of a jumbled right? up mess. It, one thing I love that you, you mentioned there, Natalie, is that, um, and I wanna make sure we're clear on this, you said on, it, it'll rental properties will show a loss right? Or mm -hmm. ideally they show a loss. That does not mean that they negatively cash flow, right? No. There is, that's one of the best advantages of owning real estate is you get to take in all this cash. And then when the IRS wants to know how much money you made because of you're following the laws and you're following mm -hmm. depreciation schedule, you get to report a loss. So your taxable income is not as much, right? So I, I want to make sure we're clear on that. And I love the way that you put that earlier. So, um, we're almost up on time. <clears throat> Excuse me. I want to ask two questions from members that were not able to join us today. Um, cause I think they're really valuable for everybody listening. So Gwaith, uh, proposed this. He said in this scenario, if you're married and filing jointly, you have an LLC with a 50 50 split together. So in my case, it'd be me and my wife. Um, one of you is classified as a real estate professional and the other is not. Can the real estate professional's losses offset the ordinary, the other's ordinary W-2 income, especially since they're filing jointly, right? Yep. Yeah. So you don't even need an entity. If you are married and one person qualifies, you both get the benefit. So that is kind of your A number one scenario. I have a client who just called me and said, my wife just took a stupid job. She's making $12 an hour. Can you tell her why it would be worth it for her to quit and manage our rental? <laughs> and that's why. Okay. So one of you can still, you know, work at Google and make 300 grand a year. And then if you have a huge rental portfolio that is generating 200 grand in losses a year on paper, you've got, you know, a hundred properties and the other person manages it. Well, now you're only paying tax on a hundred grand a year because your 200 loss offsets it. So that's kind of the perfect scenario is have one person stay high income earner so that you can, sorry, I have a fuzzy, so that they can qualify for loans. And then the other person is a real estate professional so that their losses can wipe out your income. Okay. And then we pay no tax. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, the least amount of tax. Yep. Right. So, and then Melody, uh, who's not also didn't, was not able to join us today. She posted several questions, which I think you've answered every one of them except for this one. So, um, would the basis of the property for the, you may have answered this earlier, actually, uh, would the basis of the property for depreciation be the purchase price? or purchase price plus all the loan cost? Both, so, okay. <laughs> so your depreciable basis is basically all costs you incurred to get the property and put it into use. So keep that in mind too, because if you buy a property and you spend six months renovating it, 
and you think, oh, I'm going to get, I'm going to get to expense this, you know, $50,000 this year. Not necessarily. If it wasn't ready to be a rental yet, it wasn't in service yet, we don't get to start counting until it's ready to be put into service. Um, and then her other question was on the split, the 80-20 split building land. Yes. If your accountant is doing that, they are lazy and they suck, and that <laughs> will come up in an audit. You can't okay. just make an arbitrary allocation. You can use seven different ways. Um, most accountants just use what's on the tax assessor website for building versus land. One of the things I do is actually analyze it using the four most prominent ways so that we can select the one that gets you the best depreciable basis, lets you deduct the most. Okay. Drew, you had your hand raised. Is that by mistake? Yeah, we're good. Sorry about that. <laughs> That's cool. Um, and then I think you answered the rest of them. So uh, unless anybody else has anything for Natalie, Natalie, I do want to appreciate you uh, joining us. I think this has been extremely beneficial for us and everybody who's going to be able to watch it. So um, one of the things we talked about, I think, before we hit the record button was, you know, I asked you, hey, you're, you started in Seattle, you're now in Charlotte, I'm in Florida. Um, can I use you as my tax strategist or tax specialist? Uh, you said yes. And as a matter of fact, you have uh, clients in 42 states. And then we had a joke about California. But so, so dive into that a little bit. You know, if somebody has something they're struggling with, their CPA or their CPA is not focused on uh, real estate investing and they want to reach out to you, how can they find out more about you? Obviously, you're on bigger pockets, right? Which most yep. of them are too. So how can everybody else reach out to you? Um, what's the best way to connect? Yep. So I, um, like you said, I work with clients all over the country. So you can be located anywhere. I'm totally paperless, totally virtual. I'm really big on automation. So um, we're all busy. We all want to save time. Let's, you know, I, <laughs> I want to keep it personal. But at the same time, we're not going to, you know, waste a bunch of time going through unrelated stuff. So the easiest way to kind of get a hold of me and if you want to chat about, you know, working together is if you visit my website, it's www.colotax.com. That's K-O-L-O-T-A-X. You can just book an appointment on there. You can book a free 15 minute kind of intro call um, and we can kind of chat about things and talk about moving forward and go from there. And when is the best time to, to schedule that meeting with you? Is April 15th? Is that when the best time to... <laughs> No, yeah. April 15th, I will be on a cruise in Cuba. Possible starting February 1st, I don't actually take um, unscheduled phone calls because we waste a lot of time doing that. So yeah. book a call, but I take clients all year. If you reach out too late in the season, you're getting an extension, but you can still come on board, but sooner is always better. And and this is something I meant, uh, learned last year is even though you file an extension, if you're expected to pay the government money, you have to go ahead and pay them. Is that right? I mean, you don't have to do anything, but yeah. you're, <laughs> right. you're kind of the unpopular opinion. So yeah. any tax you owe is due by April 15th. So even if you extend, you have to kind of do a rough estimate and pay that tax. But yeah. the penalty for not paying it is one half of a percent per month on the amount owed. Okay. So if you keeping that $40,000 lets you do a real estate deal that earns you 8%, pay the penalty of a half of a percent. Most tax people will be like, pay it, but no, like don't give them your...